All right, let's get to work. Uh, Romans chapter 1, we're going to be picking it up in verse 18. If you're just here last week, we started a new series through the book of Romans. Uh, and in Romans, we saw that Paul laid out what was what I called the table of contents and the thesis. And, and in the table of contents, we see that Paul is writing to the church in Rome and to all of us to put on display the glory, the majesty of the gospel. And uh, he begins to unpack that. And then verse 16 and 17, he says, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is the thesis. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he goes on and he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And, and that is the, the thesis of, uh, of where he wants to go. That's how the whole book wants to go to that point. And, and he, he wants to sh- show us this, this jewel that is the gospel. He wants us to see it. He wants us to savor it. But if you were to go to uh, Jared's and, and, and go and find the, the best jewel, and you say, I, I want to look at that one, what would they do? They would very carefully pull it out of the case, and, and they would first put a, a, a black cloth on the glass shelf there, and then they would set the jewel on the cloth. But it's, it's in the black cloth that, that, that it, you, it draws your attention to the light of the, the, the jewel, Right? So, so what Paul is going to do now, having transitioned from the, the introduction and the thesis, he, he's going to labor for the next several chapters and really several weeks to put out the black cloth to, to show that before we can see the light of the glory of the gospel, you have to understand how bad the bad news really, really is. And it's far worse than any of us bringing into this room can think or imagine. And Paul's going to labor to, to show us that so that when he begins to turn our attention to the light of the glory of the gospel, our hearts are, are meant to sing and, and rejoice in that. So uh, just a, a quick word about this passage. If you've, if you've got your scripture journal, and we hope you do, and you can grab one on the way out if you haven't, hopefully you've been reading ahead. I would encourage that. And if you have read ahead, even for this week, that you know that this is one of those passages that, that is difficult. It's one of the three or four messages that when I looked at the book of Romans, I said, man, that is going to be tough. It's going to be hard to preach. It's going to be hard to hear. And yet, uh, it is for our good. God has good purposes for it. H- however, uh, this passage uh, has a lot in it. And there's a temptation to uh, kind of dig into every single nugget of the passage. And, and, and there's a time and a place for that. Uh, but, but I think in, in this context, one of the dangers with a passage like this that has so much in it, that if we begin to drill down and answer every single question, we will miss the forest for the trees. I think there's actually a, a value to looking at the whole passage as a whole and seeing what is the, the main thrust of what Paul wants us to receive, what God wants us to receive in this passage. And so with that, I just want to say up front, there, there are going to be things that maybe raise more questions than answers. That you may be dissatisfied at the end. Uh, we'll put some more resources online that kind of deals with some of these things and answers some of those questions. But as always, we would invite you to uh, reach out to myself or one of the other elders, pastors, and just ask questions if you have them coming out of this. So with that said, I'm going to try to take the the passage as a whole. Uh, Now, every worldview and every religion is trying to answer two questions. The first one is, uh, how did the world go wrong? Or what's wrong with the world? 
Uh, ultimately, uh, how, how is it that we're in such a mess? You can turn on the news, and at any moment you can see that the world is not right, that there is brokenness, that there is, all, there is brokenness in every single level, in every, uh, every sphere, every institution. And so why is it like that? When none of us want it like that, why is the world broken? So that's the first question that, that every religion, every philosopher, every person is ultimately trying to answer. And the second question is, how are things made right? If this is what's wrong with the world, how are things are made right? Now, it's important that you get the first question right, because if you don't get the first question right, your answer to the second question is going to be wrong as well. And so again, Paul is going to labor to answer that first question. What went wrong with the world? And he's going to do that for the next several weeks, actually. Uh, But for our purposes in Romans chapter one, uh, just so you can kind of think in terms of categories, there's going to be three main movements this morning, three main movements. There's going to be a truth that is suppressed, a terrible exchange that happens, and we're going to talk about what, what is the wrath of God. These are th- three themes that will pop up time and time again throughout this passage. A truth that is suppressed, a, a, a terrible exchange that was made, and the wrath of God. So let's go ahead and, and jump into it together. And before I do that, I want to just pray one more time as we go to God's word. Father, we do come before you now in the name of your Son and in the power of your Spirit believing that you have a good word for us this morning. Lord, believing that you want to shape and form Christ, you want to stir our affections, our knowledge of Christ, you want to, uh, in in this passage, expose uh, our own idolatry and our own sinful hearts so that we might repent and find in you grace and mercy. So Lord, make much of Jesus, even in a, a difficult passage like this, Uh, to the end that he is seen and savored and glorified in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a truth that is suppressed. So again, uh, Paul has just uh, laid forth the the, the thesis of the gospel, and he talks about uh, a righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So this is what Paul wants to get to, but but that's the good news. And so now he's going to back us up. He's going to get us lost before he gets us found. And so in verse 18, he talks about another thing of God that is revealed. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now we'll come back to the wrath of God, but he talks about ungodliness and unrighteousness. He's talking about uh, a a brokenness vertically with with God and horizontally with one another. This is the state of the world. And he says this, the the fundamental issue, the, the reason the world is like this is because there has been a truth that has been suppressed. Truth has been suppressed. So, so think about that. In, in, we, we've got to ask the question. I'll put it on the screen here. Well, what happens uh, when the truth is suppressed at your job? What, what would happen if you went into work tomorrow morning and the truth is suppressed? Well, what would happen in, in a courtroom if the truth is suppressed? If witnesses weren't able to come forward and, and evidence wasn't, wasn't presented properly, what would happen? You can begin to imagine what would happen. There would be disorder. There would be disintegration. There would be breakdown. In that case, there would be injustice. What would happen if, as a nation, we suppressed the truth in our political system? 
Well, well, policies would be enacted that were poor or, or, or over, overlooked or uh, all sorts of things would happen in that way. What would happen in your family, in your relationship, in your marriage, in your, uh, at the dinner table if truth is suppressed in your home? Well, you can begin to imagine a, a distrust, a, 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 familial, a familial breakdown. What would happen uh, just in our own bodies when you begin to suppress the truth? When, when there, are, there are signs that are saying, hey, changes need to be made, and you suppress that truth. You can begin to figure that out. What, what happens when you're driving your car, and the check engine light comes on, and, and we've all done this, you've suppressed the truth. You, you can go on for a while, but if, if that light represents truth, eventually you're going to have breakdown, disorder, chaos, death to the car. So, so whenever truth is suppressed, it, it, it always, uh, there, there's always an effect to that. And it's always a negative effect. And so Paul says our fundamental problem from, from uh, Adam and Eve to you and me and everyone in between is that we suppress the truth. Now that's different than ignorance of the truth. Notice Paul doesn't say, uh, you guys just didn't know the truth and so you didn't live in light of the truth and then, then things went poorly. No, uh, there was a truth that was known and, and for whatever reason, we decided to push it down and push it out of the way and act like it wasn't true. In fact, this is what Paul goes on to say. He says, uh, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Now, now when Paul is going to use them a lot here, but, but really we could put us in it. He, he's, he's encapsulating all of humanity in this. So for what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So, so Paul says, this is what theologians call uh, general revelation. But Paul says everyone across all time, all cultures, in all places are without excuse because that there are two things that, that they could follow if they follow the light of creation, general revelation, and the light of their conscience that then, and, and are true to that, that, then they would come to a knowledge of God. But, but they, haven't, they have not. We have not. We've suppressed the truth. He talks about his invisible attributes, his eternal power. You, you can think of the light of creation. And we, we know that creation w- w- was made to, to put on display the glory of God. Psalm 19. That there are moments uh, where, where you are uh, beholding a mountain or an ocean or, or in some place the stars. And, and you just know deep down that there is something transcendent in this moment. And, and Paul is saying that was meant to point you to God. But more than that, he says, uh, the, and divine nature, that there are moments in your life, in your heart, and, and it doesn't matter what culture or background you're from, where you just know uh, inherently what's right or wrong. Now, that's the light of our conscience. Now, now sin has affected that and twisted that, uh, but deep down, uh, we, we know and we are without excuse. It reminds me uh, of uh, at the end of World War II when... Um, uh, they were liberating Western Europe and coming into Germany, and they liberated the town of Ordruf, Germany. And it was the first time that they encountered, the, the American troops encountered a concentration camp. And the Nazis tried to cover that up, uh, but they had to flee too quickly. And so as they rolled up on a concentration camp with bodies piled up and emaciated uh, uh, concentration camp prisoners, uh, that they were absolutely shocked by what they saw. 
Later that afternoon, General Patton rolls up in his Jeep. It says he got out of the car, saw it, and immediately threw up. He, from there, went, went into town right next to the concentration camp and found the, the mayor and his wife and dragged them out there because and, and, he, he thought, you, you had to know. You, you had to know what was going on. And, and they just kept repeating, we didn't know. We didn't know. We didn't know. And, and Patton was so angry, he went the next day and got all the able-bodied people in the town and made them come out and dig the graves for the bodies and give them a proper burial. And then Patton found out later that the, the mayor and his wife had committed suicide by uh, hanging themselves, but they left a note. And in the note, they said, we didn't know, dot, 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 but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. And this is what Paul is saying. We know. We know. Deep down, everyone knows that there is not an innocent person who has ever lived. They have the light of creation. They have the light of conscience. And yet, all of us have suppressed the truth that that is pointing to, that there is ultimately a creator. He is good. There is order and there is purpose. And so Paul wants us to very, very much be thinking in this moment. And it's important as we continue on in the text. He wants us very much to be thinking of Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And he's, he's basically, one commentary we read this week said, uh, Paul is, is unpacking what does Genesis 1 through 11 look like in downtown Rome in the first century? Or we might say on Main Street in Parker, Colorado in the 21st century. What does that look like? Think about Genesis 1 through 11. In chapters 1 and 2, God creates the universe. He creates it good. And, and seven times he says, it is good. It is good. It is good. At the end, he creates man in his image to bear his image and represent him in the world. And he says, male and female, he created them. And, and it is good. And he gives them a, a creation mandate to, to multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the earth. And it is good, good, good. But then sin comes into the world. And this disorder, disintegration, and death begins to reign in the world. And now he's applying that to Rome. He says, but ultimately, we know. Um, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. says he, he likes to collect stories of famous atheists or thinkers, philosophers that have converted to Christianity. And he says, 100% of the time, 100% of the time, when they talk about their conversion to Christianity, they say it wasn't some new argument for God. It wasn't the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the Kalam argument, any of those things. He says it was basically just a surrendering to what we already knew was true. What we already knew was true. Or we're out of academia and all that world. Uh, I, I read this story about the Aka Indians. They're the ones that Jim Elliott and his crew went to share the gospel with. Previously untouched, unreached people. Uh, and they uh, martyred him. But eventually the gospel broke in and the whole tribe came to faith in Christ. And the chief said, you may think that when we were brutalizing our, the surrounding tribes and, and murdering and pillaging, that we did that just because we were ignorant. And he says... No, we knew deep down. We knew it was wrong. We knew that we'd have to give an account to the gods or to God. And this is what, this is what Paul is saying. They are without excuse. Everyone is without excuse. And so uh, when truth is suppressed, uh, there, there is going to be filled with something else. It, that there's a vacuum to be, to be filled there. So, so when the truth is that we were made by God for God to enjoy him and worship him, but we push that to the side and we take him off the throne of our lives, something or someone is going to fill that spot. 
And, and this is what Paul goes on to next. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Meaning they didn't live in light of their created order. They didn't live in light of what, what they were made to do. They were, we, you and I were made to worship God. And so now they are living against the grain. We are living against the grain of reality. And when you live against the grain of reality, it, it always ends in heartache, disorder, disintegration, and death. It says, but they became, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And sin has this all-encompassing effect on our hearts and our minds and our world and elsewhere in all of creation. And, and here's the terrible, terrible exchange. Verse 23. And, and really, perhaps the saddest, one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. Think about that. They exchanged what Isaiah gets a glimpse of in, in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6 uh, of the glory of God. They exchanged that and said, no, we're going to take that off the throne. We're going to suppress that. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's so pathetic. Idolatry is pathetic. And for them, maybe it was uh, uh, little statues or carved wooden things or, or stone things. And, but, but really, all those things represent what, what we want, what we want on the throne. So you bow down and, and worship this thing or that thing. It's because you want safety. You want security. You want fertility. You want prosperity. You, you want uh, what, whatever you want. Uh, you could uh, bow down to these idols and make it your ultimate God. And we are just a little bit more sophisticated. We say we don't believe in the stone idols, but we, we go straight for the thing. We put, we put prosperity or, or, or health or relationship or, or, or wealth or whatever the case on the throne. And then we bow down and we serve. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for created things. For created things. It's a terrible exchange. You and I were, were made to worship, but, but we were made to only worship the one who is worthy of all our worship. And, and only he can bear up under the weight of our worship and expectation. When you put anything else in the place of God in your life, it leads to disintegration, disorder, and death. I think of uh, David Foster Wallace. I mentioned him a couple weeks ago. He uh, was not a believer. Uh, he committed suicide, I think, in 2005. Uh, but he was brilliant and a uh, great author. Uh, he, but in this really famous speech to Kenyon College, uh, the commencement address, he goes on and he says something really interesting. Listen to what he says. He says, there's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice is what to worship. Listen to what he says. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are what, where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Then he, listen to what he says. He says, on one level, we know all this stuff already. I love that he just admits all this. He says, it's been codified as myths and proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, <coughs> the skeleton of every great story. 
The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in your daily conscience. I mean, this, this guy knows, but he didn't know. He knows, but he didn't know. Well, that worship is going to take on a lot of different forms. And, and what it is, is always taking the creation, the, good, the goodness of creation, and, and twisting it and making it a, a tyrant instead of a, a good thing. And the way that that happens most often, at least most ubiquitously across all cultures and places, is uh, sexual idolatry. Sexual idolatry. And so he goes on. Again, remember uh, the creation context. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust, or that, that means the over-desire, that's how it translates, the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So th- this is encapsulating uh, all sexual sin, any sexual sin, a- anything out of God's creation mandate that, that, that ma- he created mil- men and women in his image to uh, have a lifelong covenant relationship, love relationship with one another. So anything out of that. And, and one of the ways we suppress the truth with a lie is we say, well, uh, it's just two consensual uh, adults. No one gets hurt. That's a lie. It's just me in my room looking at pornography. It's not a big deal. That's a lie. It's just whatever the case, we put sexual gratification on the throne and we pursue it and then we suppress the truth. We, we act like it's no big deal. And so this is, this is in all play. As someone once said, east of Eden or in a Genesis 3 world, all of us after pu- puberty have a sexual brokenness to us. All of us. In thought, word, and sometimes indeed, there, there is brokenness because we've put a very, very good thing, a very, very good thing that God created for our enjoyment, for his glory, for the, for the fulfilling of the whole earth. We, we've taken a good thing and made it a God thing and it becomes a tyrant and leads to disintegration, disorder, and death. He goes on. He says, because they, again, exchanged the truth of God, about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So, so when we suppress the truth sexually to make our sexual preferences or desires king, uh, then, then we have to ignore what, what we know deep down is ultimately true. So Aldous Huxley, he wrote Brave New World. Uh, he uh, was a proponent of meaninglessness or that there is no ultimate meaning. There is not a God in the, the universe. He, he really had tried to advance the work of uh, atheistic Darwinian evolution. He wrote Brave New World. I love that book. But, but later in his life, he, he writes a book called Ends and Means. Listen to what he says uh, about all of this. He says, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Now, that's, that's an interesting admission right up front. I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. But then listen to what he says. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. He says, I'm going to embrace atheism. I'm going to embrace that there is no ultimate uh, lawgiver in the universe so I can do whatever I want sexually. It's idolatry. 
It's replacing uh, the, the glory of the immortal God with created things. And, and this looks, uh, again, this exchange, Paul points to a very obvious exchange from the creation order in the next verses. <clears throat> he says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature or against nature or against created order. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay. Again, he's continuing the theme of sexual idolatry. And in this case, he points specifically to homosexuality. Is it because he thought, oh man, this is, this is really worse? No, that's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is, as you think about creation and the goodness of creation and how men and women were made to image God and come together and, and procreate and fill the earth, a very obvious example of an exchange of that is men going off with men and women going off with women. He says, and it's contrary to nature. So, some recently have argued, well, Paul didn't understand. He, he's, talking about, uh, he, he's talking about one night stands between homosexuals or, or, or pedophilia or... No, no. You need to understand, first century Rome was, in a sense, far more progressive than 21st century America on this issue. He understood that there were, there were particularly in Rome, particularly in the, the, the Roman world, that there were uh, long-term committed homosexual relationships. And yet he is still saying this is an obvious example of exchanging the truth for a lie. Now, now a, a few things that need to be said uh, because um, it, it's, it's our cultural moment uh, and the church has done a poor job uh, of, uh, of dealing with this issue. Either we've uh, taught it in such a way as to set this sin apart as somehow worse than any of the other sins, and to say that would be to miss the entire point of what Paul's making in this passage, and he'll continue to make over the next three chapters, or we've capitulated to the culture and overturned 2,000 years of church history and said, uh, you know what, it actually isn't that big of a deal. And it's not that big of a deal if what Paul is saying is wrong. If God, there isn't really a God who created the world with order and purpose and had a good intentions and plans. But Paul's saying, if you think of creation, this matters to God. So, so the first three things I just want to say uh, about this real quick. The first one is that uh, the Bible is clear that this is a, a sin. This is uh, idolatry. This is rebellion. Uh, but, but in so doing, you might say, well, I was just born this way. And I do not dispute that. If you understand the fall, you understand that it has affected everything. Even our biology, it affects all things. And we all are born with innate desires that are sinful desires. Just because they are innate doesn't make them right to pursue. So, for example, I've been married 22 years. I love my wife. She's a 10. She's, she stooped down because she felt bad to, to go for a 4 or 5 in me. And, and she's continued at the 10. And I maybe have dropped a couple rungs from there. But nevertheless, so, so like she is, she is it for me. I, I love my wife. I, I love uh, everything about marriage that God says is good in marriage. Okay, we got that? 
But I can still find myself in the brokenness, the sinfulness of my heart on any given moment, in any given day, walking down the street or somewhere and see someone else that is not my wife and something in me innately says, I would like to be with her as well. It's innate. Now, I can't come back to my wife and say, I think God just made me born a polygamist. <laughs> no. I have to, in that moment, just say, I have that feeling, but I have to bring it under the obedience of Christ. Now, I, I do want to say, secondly, uh, that though it is a sin, Paul's point and, and the Bible's point isn't that it is some sort of special class of sin that is out-sinning everyone else. It, it is a sin, but the ultimate issue, and, and the point that Paul is making here, and the reason why the whole sermon's not on this, is because that's not, the, that's not the main point that Paul is making. He says, the main point is, we exchange the truth of God for life. The main point is, who's going to be on the throne? Who's going to rule? Who's going to call the shot? Who's going to say what's right and wrong in our lives? Are we going to say that? Or are we going to let God say that even if we wrestle with it, even if we struggle with that? So Rosaria Butterfield was a a lesbian professor of women's studies at at Syracuse University in New York City. And she uh, spoke across the nation on this issue. Uh, She was a a huge advocate. But uh, in uh, Syracuse, New York, uh, she was befriended by a pastor and his wife and they began to just have her and sometimes her, uh, her partner over for dinner and, and they would have this meal and, and the pastor would, uh, would just share with them the, the truth and she would ask questions and she always wanted to argue with him uh, uh, homosexuality. And, and, he said, and she said he never really argued that. He pointed her to Romans chapter 1. He said the issue is not whether or not you're homosexual or not. The issue is, who's going to reign and rule in your life? Who's going to call the shots in your life? And eventually, by, uh, I think it's six months, a year, uh, she just found herself waking up to the gospel of grace and coming to faith in Christ in that. But she says this in her book, uh, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She writes this. She says, homosexuality is not the core of our rebellion against God. A desire to be God is. A desire to be the one who gets to declare good and evil. Play judge rather than be judged. A desire to use God's creation for our own gratification rather than with pleasure for his glory. Uh, Thirdly, on this issue, I just want to say that I want us to be a church that understands what Paul is saying so much in our own heart. Our own depravity. Paul will say to Timothy, he is the chief of sinners. And he wasn't, he wasn't being hyperbolic. He just so knew his heart and he so knew the gospel. He just said, man, I'm the worst of the worst and God is still good. If we can come to a place and, and see in this whole passage that, that we all stand condemned. We've all put things on the throne that are not God. We've all worshiped and then yet see that God still has mercy and grace for us. We should be the people that lead the way for mercy and grace to anybody and everybody. And so may that be the air that we breathe in this place. May, may, we be, may this be the place where people that do struggle can find uh, a support, encouragement. Now, I didn't say, I didn't say affirmation. It, Rosario Butterfield says that if anyone tried to, in that moment, affirm my homosexuality instead of point me to the gospel, they would have tied a, stone, a, a millstone around my neck. 
But, but there are many, and I've been a pastor long enough, there are many, maybe even in this room, that, that struggle innately with same-sex attraction. And when they come to me and they talk to me, they, they often say it through tears. And they're also dealing with unanswered prayers. They're like, Mark, why, why do I struggle like this? Why, why do I feel this way? I mean, that, that should elicit our compassion, our care, our, our, our love for, for anyone and everyone. And this should be a safe place to say, hey, it's okay. Jesus will meet you where you're at. Jesus cares. And you are not outside of his, great, his reach of his grace and mercy. And so may we be those kind of people as well. Well, let me continue on. He, he goes on, just in case you think it's just about that, he goes on to list a whole other set of, uh, of idol, idols that basically encapture all of us um, and, and uh, put us all guilty before God. And so now we turn our attention to uh, the wrath of God. The wrath of God. So when you read that, when I read that, there, and we read it in the catechism this morning, there, there is something in me that recoils. Man, I don't, I don't want to sing about that. I don't want to think about that. And I think two things are going, going on in that moment. I think, one, we misunderstand what God's wrath is because we think of, uh, of sinful humans that exercise wrath, uh, like this tyrant or this person, and their wrath is poured out. And you're like, man, that's really, really bad. But that nothing could be further from the truth than God. He, he is perfectly holy perfectly righteous. His wrath is perfectly justified. And if, if you start to understand what Paul is saying in this passage about the wrath of God, there should be something in us that even rejoices with that, that, that God doesn't turn a blind eye to injustice. God doesn't, uh, doesn't let uh, uh, rebellion go on forever. God is just and right and good, and he deals with it, and he deals with it in his righteous, holy wrath, his anger against sinful humanity and sins. So, so first it should cause us men. I, I thank God for his character, his perfect, good character. But, but, but then it should also cause us to tremble because as God is going to deal with all sin and all evil, we realize that we're part of the calculus. We're, we're on the wrong side of that equation. And so we stand uh, under the justified wrath of God. And here in the passage, uh, it, it talks about uh, the wrath of God is revealed. It's present tense. Now, in our catechism, it talked about there is a day coming when God will judge the living and the dead. But, but Paul is saying that even right now, since Genesis chapter 3, the wrath of God has been and continues to be revealed. This should, this should ask, lead us to ask the question, well, how? How does God's wrath get revealed against our sin? Well, three times we, we see this phrase come up. We've seen it already in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The way that God's present wrath is revealed on earth is that he gives us up to our sin. C.S. Lewis said, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those, to, those who say to God, thy will be done. And those whom God says to, thy will be done. The penalty, the punishment for sin is built into the sin. And again, you can turn on the news. 
newspaper, any, any day of the week, any year of the decade, at any time, and you can see the penalty for sin is more sin. It's a breakdown, disintegration, death. And, and this is God releasing us where people say, I just want to do what I want. I want to pursue what I want. And God says, go ahead. Go ahead. And then he lists this list that, that, that we all see in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own world, in our own country. And we see a list that is very, very hard on people. Living under the wrath of God with the sin built into the punishment is very hard on us. It says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. He has these really long lists, but you can think of them in terms of categories. There's, there's economic disorder in, in society, greed and covetousness. He says malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. There's, there's a, a social disorder going on between man and man. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. There, there is a spiritual disorder. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. There is a, a, famil- a family disorder that is rampant in our world. And then he says this. And again, he says this in first century to the first century Romans, but it is as true today. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. When you suppress the truth, and we all agree that we're going to ignore the truth and we're going to put different idols on the throne, then we have to all agree that those idols are good, even if they are destroying us. And that's our culture right now, right? There are certain sins that are not only just ignored, but they are championed and lifted up as ultimately good things. And this is to our destruction. So what do we do with a passage like this? How do we apply this? I think simply we look at this and we need to learn to see our sin as God sees it. Learn to see our sin as God sees it. He hates it. He has a holy, righteous wrath against our sin. We can tend to downplay or make excuses for or or coddle or manage sin. And if we were to come to this passage rightly, we should ask God to give us a growing hatred for sin. We can't miss the point here. If there's anything in you that has looked through those lists or, or seen the sexual sins of others and in any way think that you're better, you have totally missed the point. The, the point is that God hates our sin and, oh, by the way, we're all sinners. That, that, that there's, that we're, we're all in desperate need of God's grace and mercy. So we need to learn to hate our sin. And as we hate our sin, we come to Jesus in repentance. Martin Luther, in his first thesis of the 95 Theses, wrote that the whole of the Christian life is one of continual repentance. It's continually God, uh, by His Spirit, uh, just waking us up to idols in our hearts, idols in our lives, idols in our actions, and just saying, Lord, that's not honoring for you, to you. I repent and I put you back on the throne of my life. So we, we must learn to see our sin as God sees it. But there's something else in this passage that is really quite amazing. 
especially if you keep last week's message in view. See, the gospel shows us that something that creation never could show us. So, so we all have the light of, uh, of creation, the light of consciousness, but the gospel shows us something more than that. The gospel shows us that our God is loving and faithful. Only in the gospel do we see that God, who is a God of holy, righteous wrath, first in the gospel chooses to pour it out on himself in our place. So we can know the power of God from creation. And he's a powerful God. We can know the justice of God from our conscience, what's right and wrong. But only in the gospel, only in the cross of Christ, can we know the love of God. So to that end, let us rejoice, let us pray, and let us come to this table and be reminded of God's love for us. Let's pray. So Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit. Lord, this is a heavy passage. But Lord, you don't want us to take lightly your sacrifice either. Lord, I pray that each of us would see the value of your blood shed for us and your broken body this morning clearer as a result of this. Lord, your wrath is being revealed, but it was revealed on Jesus on the cross, and by grace through faith, we we can have Jesus cover us so that we might have life and have it to the full. Lord, I pray that as we continue in this series, that you would just give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to embrace what you have for us. In Jesus' name.